We're going to get straight into the message this morning, if I can find it here. So this is part four, Unlocking Your Identity. Uh, it's part two of the series, Nothing But The Blood, but we've been looking at this over the last few weeks, our identity in Christ. Um, and it's not just the fact of how God views us, but the fact that God actually made us to be like him. That, that excites me, the fact that God doesn't just like me, he doesn't just want relationship with me, he actually made me to be like him. He made me to be part of his family. He made me to have relationship with him. And who remembers the two things that Satan is absolutely petrified of? Who was listening over the last few weeks? What did we preach on last week? If this week is part two of the series, Nothing But The Blood, what do you think I preached on last week? So the blood is one of the things Satan is scared of. He doesn't understand it. The name of Jesus is something he is scared of. Amen? Our theme scripture over this uh, last few weeks has been Philippians 2, 9 to 11. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, of those on earth, and of those under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Amen. He's been given the name that's above every other name. Amen? Yeah. Yeah. He's been given that name. He gave you permission to use that name. He put you in line with his family. So when sickness comes in your household, you have every right to say, the blood of Jesus has been poured out from me. I've been given that name to use. So in Jesus' name, healing come. You don't sound excited. Like I said this morning, as I'm, as I'm sitting here in worship, I'm seeing that there's this whole, I don't know if it's a resistance or something happening in the natural, but us as humans, we don't give God what he gives us. And I wonder how much that grieves God. I mean, his love for us is so great. He's given us absolutely everything. He's poured his life out for us. He's, he's put his life. He came down from heaven, died on a cross for us, went through this horrific death, and that's the reason we have communion, to, to remember the covenant we have with God. He's done everything for us. And so often we sit back and go, oh, I'm just too tired to get up. But there's a good movie on, I haven't really got time to read my Bible. Or I'm too tired to get up and pray because the movie I saw last night was really good, but it went till one o'clock in the morning, so sorry, Lord, I'm a bit tired. I've done that. I think we all do that. Sometimes we hold back and we say, God, I, I don't value you like I should. We all do that. We're human beings. But God's love is poured out so freely, so much. He's given us everything. And we need to give that back and say, God, I want to give you everything. I want to surrender my whole life before you. I'm not going to give you a quarter of it or three quarters of it or 99% of it. God, I want to give you everything. Amen? Amen. So God has given you his name. And like we said, when a husband and wife, when they, when they get married, they become a new entity. The names merge, they become one name because it's not, it's not just the man dominating, both of them lose their identity as children of their parents, they come together and they create a new entity, a new family. That's what the Hebrew uh, describes a marriage as. And when you get saved, when you surrender your life to Jesus Christ, you say, I want to become a new entity with him. And like I said a few weeks ago, God loses, he gets me. Don't laugh, he gets you too. <laughs> but we get him. And I look at the entity there and I think, 
I get everything. But God doesn't want to do it on his own. He wants to do it with us. And when he made us, in Genesis it says, man is going to be made in our image, according to our likeness. They're going to have dominion. They're going to be part of our family. When Jesus died, we became part of his household. He's given us his name. You are part of God's family. That's not just a spiritual catchphrase. Nathan and Beck getting married. Beck is coming into our family. Nathan is becoming part of their family. There's a change. There's an excitement that happens. But it's a life change. It goes on for their whole life. When you get saved, you become part of God's family. You have a life change. You have a name change. You have a position change. Amen? Amen? Beck, as part of our family, can help herself to the fridge. (laughs) She probably wouldn't, but... (laughs) But as part of our family, people who are part of our household have access to things that you will never have access to. And if I walk into your house as a guest, I don't have the right to take things that the family has because I'm just a guest. But you're not just a guest in God's house. You're part of his family. You have authority. You have his name. You have everything that he has is yours. And that's an exciting place to be in. So these signs will follow those who believe in my name. They will cast out demons. You have authority in his name. Jesus said, when you speak, I will act. You just have to speak and I will do my part. We looked at the children of Israel last week. They drew the bloodline on the door. They had to stand behind that. And they had to trust God was going to do his part. How often do we not trust God will do his part? We try and find ways to it ourselves that we have the name of Jesus that is above every other name. Amen? So the glory of God is the physical presence of God. That was something else we looked at last week. And when the Bible refers to something like a glory cloud, it's referring to the physical presence of God. It's not just a super spiritual catchphrase. It's not something that's, that's strange or weird. The presence of God comes down so thick. It says in Chronicles that they couldn't even minister in the temple. I want to see the presence of God so thick when I worship, when I pray, when I live life. I know that God lives inside of me. He's not just a presence in the room. He's inside me and I'm part of his family. When God made Adam, he created him to have relationship with him. He said, I want to have that connection. And that physical presence of God is something that we as a church, as individuals, as Christians, should be experiencing every single day. It shouldn't be unique to people in America or India or other parts of the world. It should be unique to me. The presence of God should be something I experience daily. As I'm worshipping this morning, I just sense the real strong presence of the Lord here. And I love being in the presence of God. And that's something you and I have the freedom to experience every single day, 24 hours a day. If you're laying in bed and you can't sleep, pray. God's there with you. God doesn't come into the room when you pray. He's already inside you by his spirit. Amen? So when when God made, when when God created, we we talked about this a bit more, a life group this week, but when God created um, the spiritual uh, rank, I suppose, in heaven, This is what the angels were used to seeing. They saw the Trinity, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Spirit. Then there was the archangels. Then there was the angels. That was the divine order that they understood. And then God made man. And so my question to everybody was, if God makes things perfect, 
Why was man suddenly an added, an added piece into the system? And the answer that most of the guys came up with was the fact that man was actually always part of the order. God's timing actually has to fit in with everything. We think within a time structure, we think according to, to time, but God doesn't think according to time. God sees purpose. So God made man and then he slots him in just under himself. And he has the audacity to crown man with himself. God's plan was always to have you as part of his royal family. Amen? You are always intended to be crowned by God. To be part of his family, to have that authority, to have his name, to be part of his household. And when God made man, man was in a position where he was actually over the angels. So even if Satan never fell, even if Satan remained perfect, man was always over him in authority. Man always had that position in heaven above Satan. But when man fell, he separated himself from the glory. But what we don't realise is, we don't tend to think about is, if we separate ourselves from the glory of God, there's only one other connection we can have. We came under the authority of Satan. But God knew that was going to happen. God knew that you were going to be in this place where you, where you would fall because the Bible says before the foundation of the world, Jesus was already planned to die. So if, if God had already planned for the blood to be shed before man was created, it shows that man was always a part of this process. So God sends Jesus, lives his life, dies for us, pours out his blood, and man has the ability to actually come back into relationship with God, back into that position of authority where you are crowned by God. Crowned with his glory, part of his family. But have a look where Satan lies. He's been cast out of that order, so not only is he not part of the archangels, he's actually out of the system, you are back in that place of authority above Satan, and he is not happy. Amen? You need to get hold of this image. Know your place in God. Know the fact that the enemy wants to wipe you out. Know the fact that he wants to attack you, but he doesn't have authority to. Because Jesus gave you his name. He poured out his blood for you. He set everything up so you can come into that place. That, that place of, of man being crowned back in, in, uh, in that position under the Father, be part of that family, that's choice. That's not just a given. When Jesus poured out his life for you, you have to choose to respond. You have to choose to surrender your life to him. You have to choose to say yes. When Nathan proposed to Beck, she had to still give an answer. It was yes, by the way. <laughs> but we need to realise that we have to choose God you are responsible for the choices you make in life you are responsible for your position in life in the drug and alcohol counselling I've done when I worked with some of the criminals at court I would say you are here because of choices you've made don't blame your dealer don't blame society don't blame your family don't blame the magistrate look at yourself 
And most of them would say, yeah, I guess so. We have to choose to respond. We have to choose. I am where I am because of the choices I've made in life. If you like it, awesome. Probably good choices. If you don't like where you are, just change your choices. We can beat ourselves up over some of the past that we've been through, but I am who I am because what God has brought me through. And so the choices I make from this moment on will determine my future. My future is not dictated by my past. My future is dictated by the choices that I make. So in, in Exodus 12, we see the night before Passover, the Israelites had to kill a lamb and paint the doorpost with its blood. And in the Old Testament, when the bloodline was drawn, the angel of death could not cross it. And what I love about that is the fact that it was just an ordinary lamb. It was spotless, had to go through the process, but it was just a physical lamb. And the blood of the lamb applied in faith was enough to stop the enemy coming in to kill. And yet you and I have the blood of Jesus shed for us. His blood is much, much more valuable. Nothing, if a lamb can stop Satan, what do you think the blood of Jesus can do for you? Amen? But the thing is, God said he would protect them, but they had to sacrifice the lamb, they had to apply the blood on the doorpost, and they had to stand behind that door in faith, believing God would see it through. Their lives depended on it. And as we were talking about this at Life Group this week, it hit me that this was a spiritual attack. They couldn't say, you know what, it's not working. I'm going to go to Pharaoh and ask for his protection. They couldn't go out and try and hide somewhere. They couldn't do anything. All they could do was trust God. There are times in our life when we can't do anything, when we can't go anywhere, when you've been given, whether it's a death sentence or you've lost your job, things have happened, we're going like, I don't know what to do. Nobody can seem to help. All you can do is stand in faith, say, well, I just plead the blood of Jesus. And I trust that my God has got my back. Because he has. So they had to apply the blood and they had to trust that God would do the rest. And he did, based on the blood of a lamb. You and I have got the blood of the lamb poured out for us. How much more will God honour that? No more than the blood of the lamb because he said he would and his word is final. So through studying the blood, through studying what it stands for, I found there's a formula in the Bible that works every time when we pray. You're like, good, I'd like to know what this formula is. It's called faith. Great, faith again. We have to trust God will do what he said he will do for that to happen. Mark 11, 24 says, Whatever I say to you, sorry, therefore I say to you, whatever things you ask, when you pray, believe you receive them and you will have them. When you pray, believe. Don't believe after it happens. They had to apply the blood on the doorpost and then believe. When you pray, that's the moment you have to start believing. You have to trust that God will see it through. Because God responds to faith, not repetition. So often when we pray, it's God, please do this for me. God, please do that for me. God, I really need an answer. God, please, have you heard me? I haven't seen an answer. God, please. God's given you authority. You start declaring. I have the blood of Jesus poured out for me. I have his name. I declare health over my household in Jesus' name. And I can pray this through. The repetition that I pray isn't God, please answer. It's I declare the word of God. Continue to repeat the promises God has poured out for you. 
In Hebrews 11, 28 and 31, it says, By faith Moses kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he who destroyed the firstborn should touch them. By faith, it was a response, a choice to honour God, a choice to obey God. Hebrews 11:31. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who believe, who, who did not believe, when she had received the spies with peace. And we're going to come back to this in a little bit. But by faith, she had to believe. She had an agreement with them. This is going to happen, and she just trusted it's going to happen. By faith, Moses kept the Passover. When the Israelites applied the blood, they had to do it in faith. Hindsight is an awesome thing. Like Dennis shared in communion, we look back and we know the stone was rolled away. We know that the Israelites were provided. We know that God parted the Red Sea. We know that when they were hungry, he provided food. We know that. And yet in our humanity, we still don't trust him when we have a need. That's why the Bible says faith comes by hearing and hearing. Because I've found that the more we study the word, the more we read the word, the more I read that God responded time after time after time after time. The more I read that, the more I realize, you know what? God's faithful. And so when his word says he will, he's proven it over and over and over again. I've seen it with my own life. When, when I've prayed that God has actually responded, when God has provided for us. And so it's not a new thing every time, God, what's going to happen here? I still have to stand in faith. I still have to trust that God will see it through. But I know from past experience that God's faithful. And so I can pray knowing that my God has the ability, the desire and the capability of acting on my behalf. But I have to stand. Fred was sharing something this morning that he heard this week of of somebody who who was believing for a baby. And at the 20-year mark, she still didn't have a child. But her word of faith was, when I have a child... Not if, not maybe God will, it's when I have. And it was another nine years later before she gave birth. But her word of faith was when this happens because that's what I'm believing for. That's what she was standing believing for. We need to continue trusting God. We need to continue declaring his word. We, we need to continue speaking that out. The Israelites didn't have hindsight when they had to apply the blood. They've been in captivity for 400 years. They'd, they'd seen God do all these things with Pharaoh. So they'd seen, I think it was nine or ten miracles that happened there that God had, had stood in on their behalf. And all these things, water turned into blood, frogs everywhere, locusts, they were protected. They'd seen things. And I reckon their faith would have been an element where, you know what? Let's just see what God does. He's thought outside the box every time. He's proved us wrong every time. So let's just apply the blood and trust that God will be God. In Revelation 12:10, the Bible says, "The accuser of the brethren who accused them before our God day and night has been cast down." The word "accused" there is a legal term, meaning a plaintiff who brings charge before the assembly. Satan is looking to bring a charge against you. He's looking to pull you down. He's looking at every opportunity and to do this day and night. Can you imagine being God going, "Oh great, it's you again?" But Satan comes up, hey, have you seen what Ian's done? Have you seen what Peter's done? Have you seen what Bart's done? Man, <laughs> you have no idea what Bart did this week, God. God says, yeah, I see what Bart did. He pled the blood. He asked for forgiveness. I see who he is. He's my son. So no matter what Satan brought before them, God always had an answer. 
Because verse 11 says they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. So if the, if the accuser is a legal term, we need to look at this from a legal perspective. What is a testimony? A testimony is, is the, the defence that you bring. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. They overcame him. So when he stands up and points the finger, when he casts judgment and he says, what do you plead? Well, I, I plead the blood of Jesus. And he's going, Duh. can't do anything against that one. He can't, he's blocked. 1 John 5, 4, whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that's overcome the world, even our faith. Your faith is what brings victory. Your faith is what helps you overcome. This verse says they overcame him. So how do you overcome in faith? In the blood of the lamb and the word of your testimony. Our faith needs to be in the blood of Jesus as well as the words of our testimony. I'm not saying Jesus' blood doesn't count, your words do, but this is the blood of the lamb and the words of your testimony. The Greek word for testimony is martyria. It's a legal term and it means the evidence that comes out of your mouth. So you're not just giving testimony, you're providing evidence. So if you're declaring what you see in the natural, are you, are you declaring the word of God? Because the evidence, the testimony that comes out of your mouth will determine the outcome. I can turn around and say, Satan, I'm in covenant with God. The blood of the lamb has been shed for me. I plead the blood of Jesus over my life. I stand on the promises of God, the fact that his blood was shed for me, the fact that I can actually ask his forgiveness, the fact that I can stand there. I do that. I do it in faith, knowing that my God has forgiven me. So I don't care what charge you bring against me. I don't care what you say. I don't care what you try and do. God stands against you. Amen? You overcome your legal opponent by the blood of the lamb and the words that come out of your mouth. Jesus' blood was shed for you. It was done on the cross. The moment I accept him as my saviour, my testimony becomes I'm a child of the king. I'm part of his family. He is my covering. So I don't care what you say, Satan. I know my position in this royal order and I'm above you. So pull your head in, get on your bike, get out of town, I'm standing on the promises of God. And we need to have that testimony that comes out of our mouth rather than crying, oh, what words are you speaking? How much does the word of God become a part of your vocabulary? How much does what you see in the natural become part of your vocabulary? And this is the communion message. Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. To proclaim means to preach, to speak loudly or to declare. So when Jesus died, he shed his blood. So every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you preach. What do you preach? I preach the blood and the word of the testimony. Jesus' blood was shed for me. I'm his son. I ask forgiveness for my sins. That's it. Deal's done. Let's get on with life. And sometimes we make it a big deal. I've done so much, God couldn't possibly. It's not hard. It's not complex. The blood was poured out. Your testimony needs to line up with God because God has put you in place with him. The night that Israel had to paint the blood on the doorpost was called the Passover because the angel of death passed over, not through, over. 
And it was a, a thing they had to do this annually. It was an annual feast to remind them of the fact that I have the blood shed for me, that I have to do this on, a, on an annual basis. And the Passover was the first 24-hour day of the feast and the following seven days when they celebrated the feast of unleavened bread. So throughout the Bible, leaven present, uh, represents sin. They had, to, they had to get rid of leaven from their house for a week. They had to have a mindset for that week that anything to do with sin had to be cast out because my mindset has got to be the righteousness of God. The Feast of Unleavened Bread is a festival that helps them focus on replacing sin with righteousness, which today we can only do through Jesus. So we, we need to also remember that the Last Supper was actually the Passover meal. The fact that the blood on the doorposts protected the, for them from the destroyer was the Passover meal. Jesus' blood was shed that night. He was sacrificed. His, his blood was poured out for us. So this Passover, when Satan no longer has authority, when he has to pass you by, when he has to pass you over, why? Because of the blood of Jesus. And why was it applied to the door? Because the door is the entry to the house. What is going inside of you? I think of that, I think of some of these shops when they have an air curtain. You walk through the door, this air curtain is there and it actually blows down on top of you. The idea is to keep the, the cool air in, the warm air outside, stop the flies from coming in. But that air curtain literally filters you as you walk through it. It's like walking through a waterfall. Where you walk through a house where the blood of Jesus is applied, you are filtered by the blood. And so when I look at this and I say, I apply the blood of Jesus to the door of my heart, my whole, my whole household, my whole house here, has been filtered. The door is enough. Let Jesus come in. Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock because he wants to come into your life. You have to let him in. Again, choice. You have to choose to respond. When Jesus said, Every time you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till he comes. He was moving the importance for them then, for us now, from a Passover meal to him as our saviour. The focus isn't just on the meal, it's not on the, the religious institution, it's on the fact that Jesus' blood was shed for me. It changes the focus. We're going to look quickly at Joshua 2. If you've got your Bible, turn to that. I'm going to start with verse 1. Then Joshua secretly sent out two spies from the Israelite camp at Acacia Grove. He instructed them, scout out the land on the other side of the Jordan River, especially around Jericho. So the two men set out and came to the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there that night. But someone told the king of Jericho, some Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent orders to Rahab, bring out the men who have come into your house for they have come here to spy out the whole land. Rahab had hidden the two men but she replied, yes, the men were here earlier but I didn't know where they were from. They left the town at dusk as the gates were about to close. I don't know where they went. If you hurry, you can probably catch up with them. Actually, she'd take them up to the roof and hidden them beneath bundles of flax that she'd laid out. So the king's men went looking for the spies along the road leading to the shallow crossing of the Jordan River. As soon as the king's men had left, the gate of Jericho was shut. Before the spies went to sleep that night, Rahab went up on the roof to talk with them. I know the Lord has given you the land, she told them. We are afraid of you. Everyone in the land is living in terror, for we have heard how the Lord made a dry path for you through the Red Sea when you left Egypt. And we know what you did to Sihon and Og and the two Ammonite kings east of the Jordan River. Those people you completely destroyed. No wonder our hearts have melted in fear. 
No one has the courage to fight after hearing such things. For the Lord your God is the supreme God of the heavens above the earth below. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will be kind to me and my family since I have helped you. Give me some guarantee that when Jericho is conquered, you will let me live along with my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all their families. We offer our lives as a guarantee for your safety, the men agreed. If you don't betray us, we will keep our promise and be kind to you when the Lord gives us the land. Then, since Rahab's house was built on the town wall, she let them down by a rope through the window. Escape to the hill country, she told them. Hide there for three days from the men searching you. Then, when they have returned, you can go your way. Before they left, the men told her, we will be bound by the oath we have taken, only if you follow these instructions. When we come into the land, you must leave this scarlet rope hanging from the window through which you let us down. And all your family members, your mother, your father, your brothers and all your relatives must be here inside the house. If they go out onto the street and are killed, it will not be our fault. But if anyone lays a hand on the people inside this house, we will accept the responsibility for their death. If you betray us, however, we are not bound by this oath in any way. I accept your terms, she replied. And she sent them on their way, leaving the scarlet rope hanging in the window. And I think it's interesting, the scarlet rope was there as the symbol for the, for the covenant, for the contract that she had. But the response they said was, everyone inside this house will be safe. You step foot outside the house, you come out from under this covering, we're not responsible. And again, if we have the blood of Jesus applied and we tend to step out from under that, God's not responsible. And so often we say, God, why did you allow this to happen? And I'm not pointing the finger at you saying that's happened, but we need to say, God, have I actually done anything wrong? God, is there anything I need to repent from? God, have I actually allowed things to come into the house that haven't been right? We've got to do our own work here, but know that when the blood is applied, we can stand behind that in faith. For the Israelites to be delivered from the destroyer, they had to have that blood applied to the doorpost of their house because the blood was symbolic of Christ. Rahab had to tie a scarlet cord to her window in order to save her family. That scarlet cord was symbolic of the blood and was an act of faith on her part. Again, once that was there, she had to just trust that it was going to happen. Now if we go to chapter 6 from verse 1. Now the gates of Jericho were tightly shut because the people were afraid of the Israelites. No one was allowed to go out or in, but the Lord said to Joshua, I have given you Jericho, its king, and all its strong warriors. You and your fighting men should march around the city once a day for six days. Seven priests will walk ahead of the ark, each carrying a ram's horn. On the seventh day, you are to march around the town seven times with the priests blowing the horns. When you hear the priest give one long blast on the ram's horn, have all the people shout as loud as they can. Then the walls of the town will collapse and the people can charge straight into the town. And verse 15, on the seventh day, the Israelites got up at dawn and marched around the town as they had done before. But this time they went around the town seven times. The seventh time around, the priest, shout, uh, the priest sounded the long blast on the horns. Joshua commanded the people, shout, for the Lord has given you the town. Jericho and everything in it must be completely destroyed as an offering to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and the others in her house will be spared, for she protected our spies. Verse 22, meanwhile Joshua said to the spies, keep your promise. Go to the prostitute's house and bring her out along with her family. The men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab, her father, her mother, her brothers and all the other relatives who were with her. They moved her whole family to a safe place near the camp of Israel. And verse 25, So Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. 
The very first question I have when I read that is, why did godly men go to seek refuge at a prostitute's house? And when you look at the history, you look at the culture, a prostitute would be where people is. And scholars believe that she was actually the owner of a hotel. That she had people coming and going all the time. So prostitution was actually a part of her big income. But having a hotel was it. Now you can run multiple sources of income. I used to be a shoe repairer, but on a, in addition to that, I'd repair locks. I'd cut keys, I'd do engraving. So you can do multiple things that help bring in the income. So it's not unreasonable that she could do prostitution as well as running a hotel, which is possibly the reason why they stayed there. But I can imagine Rahab standing in court when the prosecutor or the accuser comes and says, you're a prostitute, you should be stoned. How do you plead? I plead the blood. And it's been, I'm pretty sure it's this case, but they've actually discovered that the, the place that they believe was Rahab's house was the only part of the wall that didn't collapse. And I think it's interesting when, when you have covenant with God, God will see it through. When God destroyed the walls, the walls came down, but he kept, kept her safe. And when you plead the blood of Jesus, you're pleading your legal covenant and rights of protection against the enemy. And in verse 25, so Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute and her relatives who were with her in the house because she had hidden the spies Joshua sent to Jericho and she lives among the Israelites to this day. The scarlet cord was symbolic of the blood that saved her family when they stood behind it. But not only that, we see that her lifestyle would have changed. When she, if she's part of the, the Israelites, you know, any, any prostitution, they should be stoned. And yet it says she lived with them to this day. It indicates that her life would have changed. That that scarlet cord, symbolic of the blood, was a point of change for her life. It brought about salvation for her and her entire family. And too often people want salvation, but they don't want to change. The glory that man was crowned with, the presence of God, left when we sinned. The blood was shed so we could come back into relationship with God and come back into his presence, but our desire should be to stay there, which means change has to happen within our life. Again, choice. Do I want the presence of God, or do I want an easy life? It's easy to sleep in. It's easy to watch TV every night. It's easy to do these things. It's not always easy to seek and pursue the things of God. But the rewards, just the sense of the presence of God is something that's so incredible we have the freedom to, to pursue that. Ephesians 4 says that we're, we're to give no place to the devil. That means we don't have to give him a place when he attacks. And the way we open that for him is if we sin. We open a door for him to come into our lives. But the word place in Greek is topos, which means it's an assigned place. So when you actually give the enemy place in your life, you're actually assigning him a part of your life. So if I have a household, or think of a hotel, if I assign a room to someone, I give them the authority to do whatever they want within that room. When the enemy comes in my life, it's a, it's a point of ownership. I'm assigning part of my life to him. Don't assign a place to the devil. Don't give him anything. The word give uh, in grammar is present active imperative. Present is now active means the subject, you are the doer of the action, and imperative is a command. So Paul is saying there, don't give him a place. It's a command that you have to act on. 
It's a choice that you have to make. How do we do that? Verse 25, put away lying. That's a way we can let the enemy into our life. If we lie, we open up a door for him to come in and have authority. Be angry and do not sin. Anger is actually an emotion created by God. There's nothing wrong with being angry, but it's the sin part that actually is the choice. So you can choose. You can respond and be angry, but the moment you cross over that line and you sin, you're actually giving the enemy a place in your life. Ephesians 8, 4.28, Let him who stole steal no longer, but let rather him labour, working with his hands what is good, that he may have something to give to him who is, is, who is in need. We say, well, that's really easy. I don't steal. I'm a Christian. Awesome. Who downloads songs off the internet illegally? Who downloads movies illegally? There's things that we just say, but that's only something little. Well, what does God say? Are we giving the enemy a place in our life or not? Do we want to respond to the things of God or not? Sometimes we have to make a choice, and I'm actually not going to pursue these things anymore. Verse uh, 29, let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification that it may impact grace, impart grace to the hearers. What words are coming out of your mouth? Words of life or words of death? Verse 30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 31, let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamour and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. And Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore be imitators of God. I've, gone, I've missed that one as a slide. Uh, Therefore be imitators of God as dear children. How many of you have ever seen your children imitate you? <laughs> Whatever they see, they do. When you swear, they swear. When you respond favourably, they respond favourably. Our kids learn from us. They learn the principles of life from us. So you need to be an imitator of God as a child. Whatever I see, I do. Have you surrendered authority? Have you given the enemy somewhere to live in your life and surrendered a measure of authority over him? If you want that back, 1 John 1, 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is faithful. His blood has been poured out. He's done absolutely everything he's ever going to do. You just have to choose to step back in. If you've made a choice that's actually said, you know, I'm actually outside of the, the covenant of God, I'm back under the covering of Satan and I don't want to be there, just make a different choice. I choose to get back under the covering. How do I do that? I plead the blood of Jesus. I thank you, Father, that you poured your blood out. I thank you that I can ask forgiveness of sins and I do that now in Jesus' name. I ask you to forgive me. I want to be restored to you, back into that place of authority. And when you do, you realign yourself with God. He becomes that place of your covering and Satan has no authority over you. As I was putting this picture together, that whole concept, Satan isn't even part of it. He's not even under that line of, of any connection to you at all. Now, I'm responsible for my children. Those who are under me in that generation, I'm, I'm responsible for them. But I have no responsibility over somebody outside my family. I have no responsibility, connection or anything with Satan. I have authority over him. I'm not connected to him. He's not part of my family. He's not an uncle that I have to be polite to because he's family. 
He's nothing. He has no place. You have authority over him. He knows that. And he's trying to realign himself and say, actually, I'm actually up here. He'll, he'll put things out. The Bible says he walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You give over that place of authority to him, you allow him to devour. Come back under that covering of God. The word vigilant from that verse, be sober and vigilant because he, he walks around like a roaring lion. The word vigilant means to be watchful. Keep your guard up. I think it's interesting too that, that he comes around day and night pursuing, day and night he's trying to attack. He's vigilant, he's, he's doing his part. But as children of God, we're not necessarily as diligent as he is. Choose to be in that place where I want to be under that covering of God. Choose to respond accordingly. And there are times we have to say, oh, I've done that again. Well, change again. We, we don't need to beat ourselves up when we do things wrong. I've done things wrong time and time and time again. The Bible says we're to forgive others 70 times 7. Jesus' blood is eternal. It never loses its power. It's always there. It's always available. You make a mistake, you realign yourself with God. If you come out from under that covering, choose to come back in. We are human, we will make mistakes, but God's given us the power of choice. The Bible says, resist the devil and he will flee. How do you resist something? You push back. If you've ever played basketball and you're, you're, you're vying for the ball or football, you're pushing on this guy. If you actually allow the guy to push you over, you'll be on the ground and, and you're hopeless. You have to push back, you have to contend for it. If you want to contend for the things of God, you have to resist the devil because he will push. You just have to push back. And you push back with the blood of Jesus. I'm just going to ask the music team to come forward. I want to sing that song, Agnes Day, again. Know that he is our father. Know that he is our God, that his blood has been poured out for us. Like I said earlier, his blood has been given. His name has been given. You are a part of his family. You have the ability to choose to step into that. So as we sing this song, I want you to let it be a choice that you choose. If you, if you need to do business with God, do business with God. It doesn't have to be something that's complex. It's just, God, I've, I've sinned, I've made a mistake, I ask you to forgive me. And it's as simple as that. Because his blood is faithful. It's never, ever going to lose its power. The blood of Jesus is more powerful than anything Satan can throw at you. You have his blood, you have his name, you have the authority of God as part of your life. You just have to choose to align yourself with God as your Father. Amen? <laughs> Let's stand. And as we're singing this song, if you need to come forward for prayer, come forward, we'll pray with you. We're not going to spend a whole lot of time praying.